This is a Stimulus Network podcast. We actually get a lot of fossils from construction companies across Southern California to say, hey, we were building a bunch of houses and we found a mammoth and now we need a place to put that. You know, I once had a woman who called me and said, hi, I think I found a fossil in my rose bushes. And I asked her to send me pictures. I looked at it. I was like, oh, you absolutely did. You, you found a camel's ankle bone in your rose bushes. And then I went and picked it up and we put it in the collection. It's like being a fossil librarian. You're having to organize and catalog these things much in the same way that librarians do books. Welcome to Inside the Petri Dish, the podcast that puts science under the microscope. In this episode, I'm joined by Brittany Stoneberg, Collections Manager at the Western Science Centre in California. She takes us into the world of museum collections. My name is Brittany Elizabeth Stoneberg. I'm a vertebrate paleontologist. I'm the Collections Manager for the Western Science Center in Southern California, which is a natural history museum. So um, we specialize in fossils and artifacts, particularly from uh, what we call the Pleistocene Epoch, also commonly known as the Ice Age. So it's a fairly recent period of time, ended about 10,000 years ago. So I have a bit of an unusual background for somebody who works in paleontology. My undergraduate degree is actually not in geology or biology or any of those things that most people specialize in. My undergraduate degree is actually in English, which I actually have found to be quite useful. And I also grew up quite religious in the United States. There um, is a stem of thought like called creationism. Um, It's a religiously affiliated ideology just says, you know, uh, the world was created in six days, literally. And there's a whole bunch of other things stemming from that. I was raised in that, so I was not raised in the kind of environment that encourages uh, science or um, the, the field of paleontology, which, you know, is based on geologic time, which goes for millions of years, billions. Um, and that was not a framework I had growing up, but uh, got away from that uh, as an adult, uh, wandered around a bit trying to figure out what I wanted to do and stumbled into this field, um, which I've been in for about almost eight years now. and loving every minute of it. The cool thing about, you know, behind the scenes at a museum is that it's actually 90% of the museum itself. Whatever you see on exhibit is a very small percentage of whatever the museum has in its collections and its archives. Um, Even 10% would be a wildly huge estimate. Um, For context, my museum, the Western Science Center, which is a bit smaller, we're a regional museum, has over a million objects in our collection, um, most of which are not on exhibit at any given time. So really, the exhibitions, the public-facing programs are just a small portion of what any museum does, and then you have the collections and the research, and that's what's going on behind the scenes. And a museum is really meant to facilitate that storage of the collections, the research of the collections, and that's where everything that goes to the public, whether that be through exhibits, public programming, or anything else, 
that's kind of coming out of the collections. And so the behind the scenes bit, the I think it's often thought of as like a dusty warehouse full of specimens. You know, that's actually what's really powering the museum and its uh, museum and its mission. I just said a couple of minutes ago, you know, it's often thought of as a dusty warehouse, but it's it's not. These are in most places meticulously cared for objects that are fueling research into all sorts of disciplines. And in paleontology, it's often, you know, things that people wouldn't expect. It's not just learning about the past, but it's learning about the future and learning about climate change and environments and ecology. And so having these collections just sitting behind the scenes where most people can't see them really makes it so that uh, those objects are able to be used and researched for years to come. The way I think about it as a collections manager is like what I'm actually am as a steward, just meant to keep these objects safe and accessible for years to come. So that in 50 years, if somebody has a brilliant idea uh, and they want to look at these collections, they will be able to do that. What looks good, what looks showy, what looks really interesting to the human eye is not always what is the most important for research, interestingly enough. So, you know, you could have an amazing fossil that's going to tell, um, that's going to be an incredibly critical uh, part of a research project, but it doesn't actually look that good when you, when you put it on the stage. Um, and also with collections, part of the value in it is, um, the volume, uh, you know, you're, you're going to have many specimens probably of the same type. Um, you're going, I, I work in fossil collections, but I know that in like ornithology collections with birds, you want to have many, many birds of the same type because you want to see the differences in plumage. You want to see um, all sorts of physiological differences um, across many specimens. So you will often have like, you're just going to always have more than you need for an exhibition. So when you're thinking about like an exhibition, you're thinking about what looks good to the human eye. What are people going to be interested in? What's going to tell a good story? Um, also, like what is sturdy enough to go on exhibit? Uh, some fossils and artifacts are actually pretty fragile for various reasons and don't respond well to handling or to being exposed to the elements. And so if you have something uh, for a long time, we uh, at our museum at the Western Science Center, we cast a lot of our specimens. So what that means is we basically make a copy that can then be mounted. So in the olden days, you would just stick an iron rod through any old bone. Um, we try really hard not to do that anymore. So we'll make copies of the specimens that we can then mount. And so that can make those beautiful skeleton mounts. And then we don't have to worry about endangering the other, uh, the actual fossils. Because that's, like I said, that's another thing. It's not every fossil is going to respond well to being uh, taken out of the collection and then put on display. So there's all sorts of different considerations. And even, you know, and also it's just space you're always going to have more cool specimens than you are space to exhibit them. So there's always going to be something that is in the collections that you're like, man, people would love this. And you just don't really have an opportunity to show it off yet. I like the way my museum does it because we cycle out our, uh, our temporary exhibits two to three times a year, which is nice because then we can always have like a rotating library of fossils going in, going out. 
which is nice because then we can show off more things and that's always important. There's a lot of different like considerations when you're trying to care for these objects. I definitely are on the side of I want everything to be as accessible to as many people as possible. So I want them to uh, put things on exhibit, make let people into the collections to see what they need to see for their research. But there is the other side of it is where you are also meant to be a caretaker for these objects and you have to make sure that they are able to be used and observed in perpetuity. So they need to be able to make it that far. The nice thing with fossils is that for the most part, they're just, they're rock. Um, so they don't need as much tender handling as some other things do. But they still, we still monitor, for example, all of our collection spaces are monitored for light and temperature and humidity, because those are all things that can be quite detrimental to a collection, um, even a fossil collection. You know, just because they're rock doesn't mean that they are completely immune to moisture or to UV uh, rays or anything like that. So we monitor that. We try to make sure they get a nice climate controlled area. Um, it's like, like a lovely fossil hotel everything's quite lovely and comfortable um and the same thing with an exhibit we have uh monitors also in the main exhibit halls that monitor the same thing um we try to really make sure that we're not exposing uh the fossil to the elements i mean you don't want it you don't want it to be the thing that finally uh damages a fossil when it's managed to perceive like to get through thousands or millions of years of pressure and heat and all of that and has managed to survive and still be a, a, a wonderful fossil and hasn't been, you know, lost to the elements. You don't want to be the thing that uh, that uh, destroys it. If we don't think the fossil can handle being mounted or anything like that, we'll do a resin cast or increasingly we'll do a 3D print. Uh, there's a whole field in paleontology called the like, fossil preparation. So we have a lab manager at our museum and many museums have the same, where their whole job is to basically put together the pieces of broken fossils. You know, when you take things out of the field, they'll often shatter. So they put things back together. They are able to use various glues and adhesives to stabilize the fossil. We will often, one thing we do a lot at our museum is we will often keep things in their jacket. So a jacket um, is this wonderful little cradle that can hold a fossil and all of the sediment surrounding it because sometimes you don't want to remove all the dirt around a fossil because it's just not going to be able to handle that very well. Um, and often you want to see how the fossil's been preserved. You know, is it in a is it in a unique position? Is it you know in a death pose or is there something else interesting going on with it scientifically? So. There will often be, if you've ever been to a natural history museum and you've seen a fossil that looks like it's in some sort of white plaster cradle, that's a jacket. Like I, and I, like I said, I mentioned before, we do resin casting, we'll do 3D printing, we will paint those casts or those 3D prints to look like the original fossil so it looks as natural as possible. We'll often have signage saying it, saying this is a cast, here's why we did it. Um, the original is either also on display under glass or it's in the collection. Um, and that really allows us to show a wider range of fossils. Of course, in any museum, there is stuff that um, has been there a while. Pretty much any museum that you go to probably has something in its collection that has been there for decades. 
Um, and there's also a possibility that it's been there for decades and it hasn't been touched yet. Um, but that's more of a consequence of part of what you need in a collection is you need people, you need money. And those are two things that museums always, just historically, like, you know, nobody, unfortunately, I haven't, you know, haven't been blessed with anybody coming with a bunch of money bags saying, hello, would you like an unlimited fund for your collection so you could do anything you want with it? Although if anybody listening to this podcast is a person of that description, call me. But, you know, it's, it's a museum. Is, museums are always looking for more people to do the work and more money to do the work. And so that's something that you're always going to have in a limited supply. So you're never going to get to everything. With my museum, we get a lot of our fossils in a unique fashion because in our state of California here in the United States, there's a specific law where if in California, if you are doing construction work, so if you're building a house or a store, if you are that construction company, you are legally obligated to figure out um, if you are likely to find fossils or artifacts. Um, and if, uh, if you are, then you need to have a paleontologist or an archaeologist on site to monitor that. Um, so we actually get a lot of fossils from construction companies across Southern California to say, hey, we were building we were building a bunch of houses and we found a mammoth and now we need a place to put that. We are the repository for uh, the county for this area of California. We'll take your mammoth and then I have to find a place to put a mammoth, which can be quite difficult. That's a pretty that's pretty unique to our museum. Other museums will have different experiences. A lot of it this includes our museum is our curator will go out on field expeditions and find material that way. And of course, there's all sorts of historical ways that things were found, and a lot of that was less than savory. Uh, you know, like any like any historical institution, museums have had to reckon with the fact that you know they've acquired a lot of their material through colonialist means. And you know, fossils aren't fossils, which I work with, are not artifacts, but there's still like there's this um, there's a lot of discussions going on right now about parachute science. You know, scientists going into an area um, and taking the fossils and putting them in their museum, completely removed from the country of origin and not having any collaborators in that country. Um, so I've been really encouraged by seeing how many museums are grappling with that. But, you know, then that is something you have to reckon with is how museums acquired a lot of their more historical collections. Sometimes, you know, I once had a woman who called me and said, hi, I think I found a fossil in my rose bushes. And I asked her to send me pictures. I looked at it. I was like, oh, you absolutely did. You, you found a camel ankle bone in your rose bushes. And then I went and picked it up and we put it in the collection. So we definitely have had people donate fossils that they found. Um, and that's another way. So there are all sorts of ways that we get material into our collection. I get overwhelmed by the scale of our collection sometimes, and our museum's been open since 2006. So we're comparatively very recent. I can only imagine what it's like to come into a much older museum. The way that we organize collections, the way that we think about them has also changed. So sometimes, you know, you're cursing out a, a, a paleontologist from 100 years ago because they cataloged something in a way that you would never have done it. And you're like, well, now I'm super confused. 
thank you so much. You know, when you see those stories, oh, they found this amazing thing in the museum collections and they had no idea. I'm like, well, I'm not surprised because it is the way that I often describe my job to people like in, in layman's terms is like, it's like being a fossil librarian. You know, you're having to organize and catalog these things much in the same way that librarians do books. And that means there's always, you know, there's always margin for error. And if you don't have enough time or people or money, you know, it can be, um, you can, you can swim against the tide and try and keep up with everything. And so, yeah, sometimes you have those moments of serendipity where you pull open a drawer and you're like, oh, cool. Didn't know that was there. I work for a natural history museum in Southern California. Not everybody is going to be able to visit my natural history museum in Southern California. Although I recommend that everybody should if you happen to be in the area. But realistically, most people in the world are not going to be able to see the fossils that we have there. If we digitize those fossils, um, if we make 3D models of them that we can then put online, then anybody can see them in that way. Um, I have found this to be particularly helpful as a researcher. You know, for the most part, if you want to look at a fossil and it's across the world, often you have to get on a plane. You need to go over to that new, uh, that other museum. But in a world where, you know, we're thinking more about our carbon footprint, in a world where that kind of thing can be very expensive and somebody may not have the funds to do so, you know, instead of going to see the museum in person, which is always preferable, you can get a sense of it by looking at a 3D model. For example, you, the Natural History Museum in London has put a lot of their uh, 3D models of fossils online, which then my museum, because we have a 3D printing lab, was able to print. And so we were able to print those and use them in our own, um, our own education program. Theoretically, if the Natural History Museum in London wanted to, they could also do the same with our 3D models. They could, we put those online. So they can download them, print them, make them look like the original fossil and use them in their educational program. And also I've told visitors, you know, if they happen to have like a 3D printer at home and they want to print their own little fossil, they can do that. We absolutely allow that. We encourage it even. I think it's really important because it allows us to share our collections in a new way. My view as a collections manager is that I'm also there to facilitate access to these specimens. I don't want to hide them away. Uh, that is not my personal philosophy with uh, museum collections. It's like, no, I want to share these things. And so digitization, making 3D models that anybody can access gives more opportunity to check out these fossils. It means you don't have to come to the museum physically if you want to get a sense of what fossils we have, you know, and learn their story. And we do the same thing with exhibits. You know, we um, can print uh, fossils from other museum collections, and if they allow it, we can put those on exhibits so we can give our visitors who are able to physically come to our museum a much wider range of options. Uh, a lot of our museum is kind of regional-based, which I like, it kind of gives people a sense of the animals that used to live here thousands of years ago. But it also now with 3D printing and 3D modeling and all of that, allows us to give our visitors an even wider range beyond just our one little region of the world. We can have fossils from around the world as a 3D print, and then we don't have to worry about how are we going to get the fossil here? Like, what are we gonna do? It really 
opens up the world, I think, in terms of having access to these specimens, whether it's for research or whether it's just for your own personal interest. My museum specializes a lot in what's called a mastodon. It's like a prehistoric elephant. Not a mammoth. It's close, though, but not quite. But we have a lot of mastodons. That happened to be one of the things that they found in our area. Um, and so my boss, Dr. Alton Dooley, was beginning to realize that the mastodons here in the West Coast of the United States of America were start. He was beginning to get an inkling that they were different from the mastodons in the rest of the country, particularly the East Coast. And he did a whole research trip, went around the country. But also, you know, we can take models of our mastodons here in California, um, particularly of their teeth, which ended up being the linchpin for this idea. You know, he could look at their teeth here in California, and the ones here in California are pretty long and skinny. Their teeth are much more, their molars are much more elongated. And then he would look at the ones, at uh, 3D models of one, you know, in the rest of the country, and like, wow, these teeth are pretty, like, thick and fat and they're much wider um and i think one day he showed me a 3d model on his computer of the really skinny one from california and a really much bigger one uh wider one from florida and with the 3d models on the computer he could put them side by side and then you could really see the difference and he's like oh that in addition with a uh, bunch of other different things made it made him realize like this is a different species so we were then able to say, tell the story of, hey, the mastodons in this area are now the Pacific mastodon, which is different than the American mastodon, which lives in the rest of the country. So then suddenly the West Coast acquired its own mastodon species. For everyone, museums are important because so far they're the, they are the best method we have for sharing science directly with the public. There's this idea that museums were born out of, you know, just cabinet of curiosities. Like we're going to put all of these things on display just because we think they look cool. And in a lot of cases, we're trying to show off how rich and smart we are. But now that idea has actually evolved into we want to show the most interesting parts of our world to people. And museums are a really good method for showing people directly what scientists are doing right now. I think most people do not get an opportunity to interact with science directly, at least in a way that they recognize as I am looking at the work of scientists right now. Like you were, if you're going to boil, if you're going to like make a hard boiled egg in the morning, like that's interacting with science. But most people don't really have a sense of interacting with science that directly. And so they can go to a museum and they can see all of these fascinating objects and understand like, oh, here's what the scientists are doing right now 